you all to our first Wednesday lunch of the new year, and I uh, hope you all have a happy new year. We had a good Christmas at our home. I'm sure most of you had the same. I had a birthday the last day of the year, and you all didn't know why you were celebrating, but that was it. It was my birthday, and I'm just thankful for all of y'all's encouragement throughout that whole day. It'll carry me all the way to the end of the year. Uh, my wife wants me to share with you that she's got a new boyfriend at the house, and um, about nine weeks ago, a male, a male and female Baltimore Oriole showed up at our house and had been there for nine weeks. And if you've never seen one locally, I'll leave this picture and you can see uh, my wife is more proud of that bird than she's ever been of me, I can guarantee you. <laughs> We've had a lot of fun, and uh, I don't know if you all are aware of this, the Audubon Society in the United States on the Saturday before Christmas every year uh, has the annual, uh, what they call backyard bird count, and they go around to various places, and it's all across the United States, so one of the teams in Macon came by our home with their cameras and stuff, and that was the only pair of Baltimore Orioles, I'm sure, that was reported anywhere around here, but they got to see it, and my wife was real tickled about that. We have one man in our church, uh, Bill Meyer, who is in the medical center, and Anna Dare, one of our ladies, who I believe is getting out of rehab later today. Now, I want to announce two things that are coming up uh, at our church. One is this Friday, and it's a little technical, but for you, any of you men that would be interested, and if you women are just interested, you could come too. But at 2 o'clock, we're going to have a session with our denomination's stated clerk, a man by the name of Roy Taylor. And he's going to be not lecturing as much as talking and having handouts on the whole subject of church discipline. And this is an aspect of the life of any healthy church, and our denomination has a whole structure and procedure that deals with church discipline. And Roy is um, the man that basically uh, heads up all the supervision of, of those kinds of things when there are difficulties in it. If you're interested in that subject, it'll be at 2 o'clock here at the church on Friday. I don't know if you're aware that there's a movie being filmed in our alleys right here. So if you wonder what all that's about, that's what all that material's back there. And um, they'll be doing that over the weekend. On Friday, February the 1st, and then the, uh, excuse me, Friday, January the 30th, and Saturday the 31st, and then February 1st, we're having a professor, Jim Cofield, from Reform Seminary in Orlando, Florida, and he is basically going to be giving us a marriage conference. And some of it will have to do with uh, basic male-female, husband-wife relating. Uh, on Saturday afternoon, for those people that would be interested, he is going to be speaking on being a parent of a special needs child. 
Jim and his wife have an adult son who is strongly autistic, and uh, he would like to give any kind of help that he can on that area. So the January 30th on a Friday, then Saturday, and then Sunday, February 1st, there'll be some more information that we'll be putting up in reference to that. Let me pray for us today. Father, we want to pray for this meal and thank you. We want to thank you for the end of a year and the beginning of a new year. We're thankful that you are providing for us the way, the truth, and the life through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so receive our thanks, our praise, our worship, and help us to understand your calling upon our lives that we would live as becometh the followers of Jesus Christ. We pray for Bill Meyer, and we pray for his speedy recovery. We pray for Anna Dare that as she returns to her home, she will go from strength to strength and soon be back with us on Wednesdays. Now, Father, our hearts are heavy for the people of France. We would pray for the government of that nation, those people that are involved in law enforcement, and simply we would pray that they could apprehend these people that have murdered these journalists this morning. Now, Father, too, we pray that you would take away fear from the hearts of people that are journalists and serve all of our nations well. And we pray, too, that you would bring comfort and peace to the families of these men and women that were murdered this morning. Father, we think of the nation of France, and we know a great deal of their Catholic tradition, but we're aware that secularism and atheism and all manner of rejection of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ is so prevalent in that nation. And we look for good for them, and we think that the greatest good would be that these events would cause the people of France and of the entire world to see the failure of humanism, to see the fallacy of the Muslim pronouncements and way of life, and that they would see the glory of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the God of all comfort, and that you would be merciful to them. Now, Father, we know that this threat will persist and spread, and we pray that you would help us to be people who know the truth about Christ and live with a great sense of freedom every day that were something to happen to us that we would be with Christ. But at the same time, we pray that you would give wisdom to the nations on how they may address this growing and more dangerous threat to civilization and the stability of, of governments. Help the Church of Jesus Christ here and around the world 
to express the gospel, to express the love of Christ, and to be able to come to the side of people who are confused and living under error and distortion and to bring them to the light of the truth of the scriptures. Now, help us as we look at your word to understand it in our lives. And we pray in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen. I'd like us to look at Second Peter in the third chapter. We're going to talk about having a, a devotion to the word of God. Talking about possibly dealing with the whole concept of the sacraments of the Church of Jesus Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper, how God relates his grace to us, and then the grace that and the privilege that is ours in being able not only to receive directly from God, but then through prayer and worship to offer our lives back to him. Now, in Second Peter, Peter's life is coming to an end. He's writing probably from Rome. He's probably writing to the church in Asia Minor, uh, where he had been for some time. So now, in verse 1 of chapter 3 here, he says, This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Then he goes on to speak about basically the end of the world, the future way out there. And then in verse four, or 13, he says, but according to Jesus's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant an unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Therefore, you, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now here we are at the beginning of a new year. And there's a prospect. There's a prospect. There's another year coming. It's out in front of us. 
this whole year, as it were, is out in front of us. Well, when Peter's writing here to these people, he's saying there's something and it's way out in front of you. And you're moving in that direction. We need to catch that ourselves. Where we are today, we're here, we're in this building. But we're all, as believers in Jesus Christ, being pulled and we're moving toward this great direction that Peter writes about here, and it's the end of the world in which we know it. And it's the inception, the beginning, of a, a world order in which righteousness pervades everything. Now, that, that's a long way out there. We don't know. Uh, we believe in the imminent return of the Lord. The Lord could return at any time. We live in the light of that, but we also live in the responsibility and the stewardship that we have whatever is in front of us, and we're to live it in a way that is for the Lord's glory. Now, how do we do that? Well, Peter here is speaking over and over again in First and Second Peter about the Holy Scriptures. Now, what I want to encourage you to see is that we need the Holy Scriptures. You need them today. If where we're at here is the first few days of this 2015, if you haven't read the Word of God in 2015, well, then you're behind. And you need to catch up, and you need to move in some way, shape, or form each one of us individually and personally need to be ingesting the Word of God. Now, I'm, I use this illustration repeatedly, but our good friends, the health food fanatic, will tell us, you are what you eat. If you want your world and your life to be a secular life, then just give yourself over to media because they'll be more than happy to fill you with whatever they're putting forward and dishing out. But if you want your life filled with the things that are a part of righteousness, a part of the kingdom of God, a part of the ministry of Jesus Christ that are moving towards an eternity in which righteousness reigns, if you're going to prepare yourself and you're moving in that direction, you need to be taking in the Word of God. Now, I want to make just a brief statement or two about the trustworthiness of the Word of God. I think probably everyone here would see themselves as a believer and, and accept the general sense that this is the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, uh, it's to be received as coming from God through the uh, instrumentality of, of human authors, but under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, in, in my collection of books, which is pretty extensive, um, my wife's worried about that at age 66, too, I must add. She thinks I need to divest. But in all of those books, there's a couple of them that are pretty unique. One of them is a photographic copy of a New Testament. And the date 
of the original, as near as they can determine it, is the year 325. It's almost a complete New Testament as we have it today, and it's written in Greek. And it's one of the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament that we have that is almost complete, and it is then relied upon as, as we make translations of the, of the New Testament, uh, let's just say into an American form of English. Um, when I became a believer back in the early 70s, we had, I'd grown up in the Presbyterian church, so before I was a believer, I was in the church. And, you know, I can remember in the early 1950s when I was in grade school, my, my church was in an upheaval, and it was all over the Revised Standard Version. Some of you that are old enough remember that. You can remember how the conservatives said, we're going to stick with the King James Version for certain reasons. We're not going to go to the Revised Standard Version. We think it's not up to speed. And then about the time I was being converted in the 1970s, the New International Version was being published and the New American Standard Version was being published. And we went to these earlier manuscripts that were like the one that I have a copy of, and they were studying those Greek New Testaments and Hebrew copies of Old Testament scriptures, and they were attempting to translate them literally into the spoken language of our day. Now, I can just tell you with all confidence that you can take these Old Testament documents, these New Testament documents, and if you lay them out and you were expert enough to translate them, and you would say, well, what do you end up with? You end up with something that would be the New American Standard Bible. You would get that Greek, Greek original in an English translation that would look very much like exactly what we have in front of us today. Now, there are thousands of fragments. Some fragments may only have two or three Greek words on them, but people have taken those little fragments with just two or three Greek words on them, and they've identified them. That's John chapter 6, and what we know is verse 13 and 14. There it is. So they found this fragment somewhere in the Mideast, sometimes they've discovered things like this New Testament that I have. Sometimes they have found translations that are very early, and they would be in Arabic, or they would be in Coptic language of northern Africa, or something like that. And they find these things, and they put them together, and they read them, and what we have is what the apostles gave originally with the very few exceptions possibly that would make no difference in the world. Uh, one of my favorites to refer to is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. We write these things in order that your joy might be made complete. Well, some of the translations say we write these things in order that 
our joy might be complete. Well, you say, well, goodness, the only difference between our and your is the letter Y. Well, that's right. Now, the reason I choose this one is because in the Greek, the difference between the word your and the word our is a... a a little a letter or a symbol that would look like the letter U. And in one case, it is in the letter U, an upsilon, but in the other case, it's turned the opposite direction or upside down, and it looks like the Greek letter eta. Now, if it's an eta, it means ours. If it's an upsilon, it means the word your. So listen to the verse. John says, I write to you in order that our apostolic joy might be made complete. Okay, look at it the other way. John says, I write to you into your church joy that your joy may be made complete. Now, do we have a huge theological problem here? Or is this really something that is of no consequence? I would make a case that it's of no consequence. Now, there are a myriad of little nuanced things like that. But there's no, thing, there's no New Testament scripture that we have in all of these variations that are into the a thousand or more that come up with anything that are of any substantive difference in doctrine than the New Testament that you have in your hands today. They're trustworthy. Now, we should be reading them over and over again. How should we re be reading them? Well, the first thing that we should be doing is reading them as if we are a child of God and that this is the Word of God. Our Father wants us to have his word. He wants you as his child to know him. Putting it in a simple way, we are a sibling of Jesus Christ. We call him our older brother. And so we're right, we're reading this, the word of God, and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the captain of your salvation. I've gone ahead before you. Follow me. And we read the word of God as coming to us, telling us of Jesus' direction and salvation. We're, we're people who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. When we became believers, the Holy Spirit came upon us and put a seal on us that we belong to God. Now, with the sealing of the Holy Spirit comes the given of the illumination of the scriptures that we can understand them. And so when we read the scriptures, we shouldn't read them as a student looking at a textbook, but we should read them all as a letter from our familiar father who wants us, to, as his children, to have the absolute best life that we can for his glory and that he's pulling us 
into that long ahead future which is called eternity. How do we read it? That's basically the way we should read this. Now what is it that we're to do as we're reading it? We, we are, as a believer, are to see that there's two things about these scriptures that we need to understand. One is, what does the Bible teach about God? What are we to believe about God? And the other thing that we are to see is, what duty does God require of us? Years ago in a little church in South Alabama, I had a little lady, and she was in a nursing home, and she would not speak when I went to visit her. Remember the church? She would, you couldn't even get her to blink. She was kind of like on a stare. Well, finally, one of the men that knew her well said, well, she had memorized the catechism and lots of the scripture. She never married. Everybody knew her for knowing the catechism and knowing the scripture. Well, I went down. Her name was Mary Whitehurst. And I said, Mary, I'm your pastor, and I'm here to talk with you and visit with you. Not even nothing. So I said, I have a question for you, Mary. I said, Mary, what is the chief end of God, chief end of man? Now, you, you've seen the Frankenstein movie. You've seen when Frankenstein's got the bolt, and all of a sudden Frankenstein gets a jolt from the electrode. You remember that scene? And like this? That's what Mary Whitehurst did. <laughs> it was like I had given her a, a, a shot. And almost immediately, she said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I said, well, Mary, what rule has, uh, what do the scriptures principally teach? And she said, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. When we read the scripture, we're there to read in order to know what we're to believe. We're reading the scripture because God is our Father and He is moving us through life, and we're to live for His glory. We're to try to do the things that He would have us to do. So this is what we're trying to do as we read the scripture. We need to think about this. What am I believing about God? You can believe whatever you want. You'll get into a ton of trouble. Or you can look at what the scriptures see, say, and you will be led on the straight and narrow path to heaven. What does God want us to do? You know, there's just a lot of people in the bulk of our churches that think the answer to that is, Nothing. Because what are they doing? Nothing. <laughs> so if you say very practically, what do they think they should be doing? It's very practically realized in what they're actually doing. Nothing. But that's not what the scriptures have ever taught. You can't find it in the Old Testament. You can't find it in the New Testament. Jesus and has duties for us to carry out each and every day. 
So we're to read these scriptures. Now, you know, you, you have a passage of scripture like 2 Timothy 3.16. So all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for instruction, for teaching. So when we read about who God is in the scripture, over and over again we come to God is good. Isn't that the prayer that the little children learn? God is great. God is good. Well, that's the message of the scripture. God is gracious. God is forgiving. God is forgiving. That can't be said enough. You think of the things that are haunting you, and you say, I believe in Jesus, and things are haunting you, then you don't understand that God is forgiving. That God provides, you think of Jehovah Jireh and all manner of ways, well, this is what we see. It teaches us, and what did Jesus come, God is love. But then what was the preliminary or primary thing that, teaches, that Jesus teaches? God is Father. Over and over again, my Father, my Father, my Father. What did the Jews say? He makes himself equal with God. Then what's he say? Your Father, your God and my God, your Father and my Father. And when you pray, say, our Father. Jesus is the one who comes to teach us in every way that God is good. Now, what is that going to do for you? Well, if you read the scripture and you understand that, and you let that teaching roll over you, you're going to have the comfort of God. That's what you're going to have. You're going to have the peace of God. You're going to have the truth of God. You're going to have the joy. You're going to have the sense that there is a future and not futility. That there is eternal life and not just this life. That there is the glory of Jesus and the glory to be shared in Jesus. All of these are the things that you're going to be taught. But you have to read it. You have to read it. Um, You know, you go to another culture. We had our child and Pat nursed. And then when nursing gave way, what do you think it gave way to? What name? What name did nursing give way to in our children? Don't you know it was Gerber? Wasn't it Gerber for you? It was Gerber. Now, you go to a country where they have no Gerber, and they have the same thing. It's just we don't like to think about it. And the parent chews up the food and puts it in the child's mouth. That's what us preachers feel like we're doing. And that's not right because you're adults. 
You're adults. You need to chew up your own food. And you need to feed on the Word of God yourself. You know, it's there for reproof. You say, I don't understand reproof. Really? You remember when God met Adam in the garden? That was reproof. Remember, he didn't throw him away. He promised to redeem him, but he reproved him. You remember David? Remember the story of Nathan? Remember the story of Bathsheba? That was reproof. Moses, he was reproved. Miriam and Aaron and Solomon, Peter was reproved. Remember? Remember Peter, James, and John on the mountain? All of these people were reproved. Now, who was Jesus reproving? Who was God reproving? His own children. Any child that's without reproof is in trouble. <laughs> We're going to be constantly reproved. You know, there's correction. Again, when we look at Adam and we think of Adam, Adam listened to Satan. And Satan distorted the picture of God. And God came to Adam and brought to Adam and Eve correction. I'm not like that. I'm like this. And over and over again, you have the people moving into the promised land and you've got these terrible idolatrous forms of worship and then that's corrected. God's law brings this kind of correction. David had to be corrected. We need to be corrected. Jesus was always correcting his disciples, wasn't he? Look at Peter. I mean, I kind of can relate to Peter. I mean, you know, Peter's, Peter's way of, of dealing with a pistol would have been like this. Ready, shoot, aim. <laughs> I do that a lot. <laughs> you know, I need correction. You remember Peter was going to go fishing? What was Peter going to go fishing for? Because he thought God had given up on him. That Jesus would, who's going to take me back? I denied him three times with an oath. I need to go back to what I know. I'm going to go back fishing. Does Jesus let Peter go back fishing? He's not going to let you go back. But he's going to bring correction to put you back on the trail. Over and over again we see it. There was a wonderful man in the book of Acts called Apollos, but he had to be corrected by Priscilla and Aquila. John Mark got off the trail. He was corrected and he got back on the trail. There's training in righteousness. Jesus' discipleship method. You know, um, sometimes we talk about God's justice. We say that God's justice grinds mighty slow. 
Wouldn't most of you think that? Do you see God's justice and a lot of things going on in our world today? I don't. I don't see it. But let me tell you this. God's justice grinds mighty fine. And there's going to be a day when justice is going to be justice, the way you would think, according to the scripture, justice would be. Now, in the same way, discipleship's like that. It's not fast, but it's thorough. We're called saints. We're given the Holy Spirit. We move from one degree of glory to another. Now, you know, you could go and ask my wife. She would say, yeah, last year we were married 40 years. Have you seen John change? Oh, yes. Well, where? Well, let me think about it a minute. (laughs) And that's about the way it is. But God's at work. In this process of training in righteousness is taking place. He is making us like his son who was and is righteous. So we read the scriptures and we see that they are a school of faith. But we also see that the scriptures are a school of life. What duty God requires of what does God want for my life? Um, we think about this. I think we'll look at this the next time. But you know, we have children, three, and they're good kids. And I've never been so intelligent in all my child rearing until these children got their own house and their own apartment. You would think that I had become a virtual encyclopedia. You would think I was like the Yahoo search engine of all times. They come to me with the craziest questions in the world, and they expect me to have the answer. Now, before they had the house, they, you know, they didn't need me for nothing <laughs> except to pay some bills. But it's phenomenal. When they have to do the duty themselves, how interested they get in somebody that knows what the duty is. God's in the business of showing us what our duty is in life. But he doesn't want us doing nothing. Okay. Father, as we begin a new year, we pray that we can grow in the scripture, to know you, who is life in immortality of life, and that we can know Jesus, his salvation, and the comfort of his discipleship, and that we can make a difference in the world in which we live, principally in our family, then in our church, then where we work, And then with people with whom we live, people who are believers and those who are unbelievers, that we can shine like lights, that we can be salt in a decaying world. Now, Father, as we end, we pray for those people in France 
And we pray that this can be brought to an end. And we pray that this can be kept from being repeated. Be merciful to that nation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.